Please take your Bibles with me and open them to our study of the book of Romans. This morning we find ourselves beginning what we know to be chapter 6. Of course, we understand the chapter numbers, the verse numbers. We're not there until probably the third century. But we know it to be chapter 6, easy for us to locate. And I want to begin our time, as we often do, by reading for us the section that I want us to focus our attention on. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 14 of Romans chapter 6. The Apostle Paul says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." you bow with me for a word of prayer this morning? Father, we once again come before you and we understand, Lord, that we always need you. We need the illumination of your Spirit upon us as we look into your Word. We need to have your understanding. We know that we can know you because you have revealed yourself to us here in your Word so we thank you for these words brought to us by your servant Paul and how you carried him along by God the Spirit to put down in words exactly what we need for our very lives. That we might know you and that we might live out exactly what we know. So help us do that. Help, it, help these words challenge us in the way in which we live, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we approach our time this morning, I just want to say at the outset, I'm very excited about getting to chapter 6 of Romans. Not that I wasn't excited before in the first five chapters of Romans. I, I think my excitement level grows as time goes on. Romans is probably, of all the books of Scripture, my favorite. Uh, we all could probably say that of one book or another. Maybe it's just because I resonated with it so much in my own life, in my own heart, in my own understanding. And so I'm excited as we get to chapter 6. We have already been challenged a lot in our mind through the first five chapters, especially when it got to the doctrine of justification in chapter 5, as Paul began to help us understand what it means to be justified before God. And how we become justified before God. And on a theological level, those things can be challenging to us, especially as we think about life lived out in our own day and age. And then when you get to chapter 6, Paul challenges us even more. 
In fact, sometimes when you pick up some of the commentaries of some commentators that have written on this, they will say, once you reach chapter 6, this is probably one of the hardest sections in the entire book. And partly because many don't know how to divide it up. They don't know where to place it. They place a whole new subject matter coming oftentimes with chapter 6. And I hope to show you this morning that I don't necessarily believe that's accurate by way of what Paul has in mind and the argument that he has been making for us all along. Now, I hope you have noticed in your bulletin as I put the title of the message in there each week that I have entitled this under the heading, The Danger of Not Understanding Justification Rightly. Over the last several weeks, we have talked about understanding justification rightly and what that does for us in our own mind and our own thinking and how we can have an assurance in our salvation when we understand justification. But this is going to help us understand what happens when we don't understand justification, how it affects our life. And we need that at the very beginning. We need to be reminded once again of what justification actually is. Why? Because understanding or not understanding justification can and does, in fact, have effects upon how we live out our Christianity. You may not think of your Christian life in those terms. You may not think that's the reality of what happens with you. But if you don't understand justification, it will affect how you live out your Christian life. And if you do understand justification, it has an effect on how you live out your Christian life. Why? Because understanding our unity with Christ has its effects upon you. Justification before God is an actual and present declaration by God. It is It isn't theory, it isn't fantasy, it isn't something that might happen. It is an actual and present declaration by God concerning those who believe upon His Son. It is a declaration, actual and present, of innocence concerning the penalty given to sin. If you believe upon Jesus Christ as your Savior, God, in an actual way and in a very present, right now way, sees you as innocent. He sees you innocent by means of unity with Jesus Christ. We all clearly understand that all of us are sinners. That we are guilty before God. The universality of death proves that point very patently. Death is the result of sin. All of us die. That means you're guilty. God does not judge the unguilty. And since all of us are dying, we are all guilty. And yet, by the mercy of God and through the grace of God, He has provided a sufficient payment for the guilt of sin through the sacrifice of His Son, who is the God-man, Jesus Christ, so that all who confess and repent and embrace Jesus Christ by faith as the sacrifice for their sin, they are graciously declared innocent by God on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Here's how Ephesians chapter 2 puts that truth. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Same author of Romans chapter 6 writes to the church in Ephesus and wants to declare to them the reality of how they can live for Christ when you get to chapter 4. And in chapter 2 he says, listen, you were dead in your trespasses, you were dead in your sins, you were guilty before a holy God, and you were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 puts it this way. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And so we understand justification to come only through the grace of God by means of the gift of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. Before Christ, we all earned the penalty of death through Adam. That's what we earned. For the wages of sin is death. The earning of sin is is death, and yet salvation only comes as a gift of grace through Jesus Christ. However, if we misunderstand or confuse in some kind of way in our mind that reality, not only do we begin to doubt our eternal security, but there is a very real danger of two other implications. If we do not understand justification and the actual present reality of being unified with Jesus Christ in our salvation, then we will begin to doubt that we are eternally secure, especially when we're sinful. But there's other two other implications that will flow out of that, two other dangers, if you will. Oftentimes, number one, we will begin to abuse grace. In other words, we will begin to take advantage of the grace of God and live in such a way as if God's grace is just covering everything. I don't need to worry about anything. And, or, secondly, we will misapply or even totally ignore the commands of God upon our life. So we will abuse grace or we will just totally disregard the commands of God for Christian living. And so this is what the Apostle Paul begins to address for us in chapter 6 and 7. He's addressing these dangers. God, through Paul, isn't done teaching us about the doctrine of justification. You think, some think, as they're reading through Romans, that at the end of chapter 5, this whole discussion on justification is over, and yet God isn't finished talking to us about justification. And so we need to have it firmly planted in our hearts and he will return to it in chapter 8. Because in chapter 8 verse 1 he says, For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the reality of the ever-present actual union with Jesus Christ that shows that you're absolutely eternally secure. Which is an outworking of justification. But there is a need in the meantime to address the danger of misunderstanding justification. Under Adam, there is no hope for humanity. Being united with Adam, being in Adam, there is no hope for you as a human to be declared innocent before God. If you are not in Christ, you are in Adam still. And if you are in Adam, you are not innocent before God. But under Christ, there is righteousness. In Christ, there is eternal life. In Christ, there is assurance of salvation. In Christ, there is abundant grace. So Paul tells us in Romans that those who have faith in Jesus Christ have been justified by grace. So that if you are truly saved, then you have been delivered, get this, you have been delivered from the rule of sin. You may not think about your Christian life like that, but I hope after this morning you'll start to think of your Christian life like that if you truly know Jesus Christ. If you are truly saved, then you have been delivered from the rule of sin and your standing before God is unchangeable. It cannot be changed. And yet, in life, In the life of many of us, we all know this by experience, in our lives, sin is still a potential that we have to deal with, isn't it? 
you hear what I'm saying, you say, okay, in an actual present way, I'm, I'm united with Christ and I've been delivered from the reality of the rule of sin and yet I find the reality that sin is still present. Sin I still have to deal with. The old master is still hanging around. And Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, anticipates the difficulty brewing in the mind of the Christian. Isn't that great that God does that? Isn't it great that God just doesn't say these grand truths that we understand from chapter 5 and then just leave us there with all the questions in our mind? I mean, God is such a gracious God. And He leads Paul along by the Holy Spirit, anticipating what is brewing in the mind of the Christian. Because Paul declares some pretty rich truth in the end of chapter 5. Remember what he says at the end of chapter 5, verse 20 and 21? The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, this is amazing truth. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds, Paul says. And yet, that declaration exposes two problems in our minds. And both are connected with grace and law. Grace and law. The first problem is this. If grace is so superabounding, as you have declared, Paul, in the end of chapter 5, if grace is so superabounding as verse 20 states it is, because when it says grace abounds, it means grace superabounds. Grace goes beyond everything. Doesn't that just encourage, if that's true, doesn't that just encourage professing Christians to sin even more than they ever have before? I mean, if grace is superabounding, and Christians, we know that grace covers it all, doesn't that just encourage Christians to go on sinning in the most grievous ways because it really doesn't matter? You see, we might think of it this way. If justification means what you have said, Paul, then won't that simply become antinomianism in practice? Because of grace? Now some of you are scratching your head. You're saying, wait a minute. You used a big word that I don't understand. Years ago I said the word one time. We contemplate our eschatological navels. <laughs> I said that one time when I was preaching in Ohio and, or in California. And a gentleman came up to me and he said, listen, if you're going to give $5 words, you better give me change with that. <laughs> Well, I mentioned the term antinomianism, and I'm going to give some change with that because some of you may not understand what that means. Antinomianism made up of two different words. It simply means this, against law. Against law. Anti, against, namas is the Greek word for law. And so to be an antinomian is to be someone who says and someone who lives in a practical way as if the commands of God have no bearing upon them. Okay, all of the things of the Word of God that are imperatives, all of the things that say thus shall or this shall not, really have no bearing. I'm antinomian in that kind of way. The commands of God have no bearing on me. Why? Because I'm under grace, and grace covers it all. And so the implication is that it's no big deal to violate the commands of God. It's no big deal to sin against the thus shalls and the thou shalt nots in Scripture. The more I sin, the happier I really am because of grace. Grace covers it all. You get the picture? So the argument goes that if where there is sin, grace superabounds, doesn't it make sense that the more I sin, the more... I will experientially know the grace of God. And that leads then to a second danger. And we're going to deal with both of these over time. But that leads to the second danger that Paul begins to address in verse 15 through the end of the chapter and then elaborates even more in chapter 7. 
But that is this, that if grace is superabounding where there is sin, then why did God give the law? In other words, if grace covers it all, then why do we still have commands in Scripture that speaks to Christians? I mean, why does Paul say to us, be imitators of God? Why do commands like that exist? Doesn't grace make it altogether useless? Doesn't grace make it of no value at all? In other words, if salvation in Christ is all of grace and grace superabounds where there is sin, then why the law at all? Why the commands? Why the imperatives? And what is it meant to do now for us who are redeemed? You see, if we understand justification as it is stated at the end of chapter 5 in its logical sense and in a human logic, then those two questions are somewhat logical, aren't they? I mean, that's in essence what Paul has said. And so in the grand encouragement about being eternally secure because we have been justified, which is what Paul is arguing for the whole way, he wants us to understand our absolute security in Christ. In the encouragement of understanding our security because we have been justified, chapter 6 and 7 steps back to deal with this issue. Chapter 6 deals with the first issue, the abuse of grace, or the idea and practice of antinomianism. And then chapter 7 deals with the second issue, the place and the purpose of the imperatives of God in the life of redemption. So that's the backdrop. That's the backdrop we have to keep in our minds. Paul isn't changing to a new subject here per se. Some say he's dealing with sanctification. I don't believe that. Certainly it's all the idea of sanctification and God practically making us more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ, in in practical holiness, even though we're there in position before Him in the heavenly realm. But He's going to return to justification in chapter 8. So chapter 6 and 7 are kind of parenthetical in this whole writing of Paul's letter. And so I want to just begin to deal with this first danger, the danger of the abuse of grace when we misunderstand justification. The abuse of grace. And as you well know, we're not going to get really far because this is a, this is a really complicated reality that Paul's dealing with. And we, we need to stretch our minds on this so that we go away understanding it better. Grace is such a wonderful gift of God to us, isn't it? I mean, it's so wonderful, in fact... This grace of God, in fact, as Paul states it, this superabounding grace of God, it's so wonderful that of all the truths connected with our salvation, it seems to me that as Christians, this is the one we abuse more often. We take advantage of the grace of God. I say that because even today within evangelicalism, especially, especially within the, the new resurgence of Reformation theology, which maybe you don't know about, but this Reformation idea, this Reformed theology, the doctrines of salvation that's based upon God choosing and saving and all these kinds of things, the resurgence of that, which I believe is a good thing, even within all of that, there is a dangerous misunderstanding of justification by grace, which has bled over into the doctrine of sanctification. So much so that even the purity of practical holiness in living, as Christians, we are to be practically holy. We are to live in purity. We are to live according to what God has said and how we are to live. But it's bled over into that idea and has polluted the living of Christian lives in such a way that it seems acceptable in many circles now to be a quote-unquote so-called Christian and go on living any way you want. Because, after all, I'm under grace. I'm not under law. That's what you hear. You read it in books. It's, It's strange to me. And so Paul is identifying 
something that isn't simply an ancient problem. This is a problem even today. As Solomon said, nothing's new under the sun. The practice of sin always recycles itself in new and fresh ways. And so to combat this error, Paul deals with the danger of having an antinomian view of Christian living. Right? I don't have to obey the commands of God. Paul's combating that idea by combating this misunderstanding of grace. And he deals with it first on a doctrinal level and then secondly on a practical level or how that's lived out. And both of them are to be viewed through the reality of our actual union with Jesus Christ. The doctrinal reality of justification and the practical living out reality of our justification all has to be viewed through the understanding of our actual union with Jesus Christ. If we misunderstand grace in doing that in any of those, we're going to go off the rails. So let's begin to look at this misunderstanding of grace or the danger of antinomianism from a doctrinal perspective. Paul deals with that in the first 14 verses that I read to us this morning. And just so we can have some places to hang our thoughts as we walk through this, I'm going to divide these verses up under three headings. Okay, here's the three headings to divide these up. One, the general issue being exposed. The general issue that Paul is dealing with being exposed, and that's in verses 1 and 2. Under that, leave a lot of space because that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. I'll give you the other two, but you can keep those for later. The general issue to be exposed, verses 1 and 2. After that is verses 3 to 11, and that's the solution explained. The solution to this problem explained. And then verses 12 to 14, the solution practiced. The solution practiced. So you have the general issue that's exposed in verses 1 and 2. The solution explained in verses 3 to 11, and then the solution practiced in verses 12 to 14. Now notice in verse 1 that the general issue is exposed. Here it is. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's pretty clear. I don't think any of us are confused about that. There's no sense in continuing to repeat the question over and over again and insult our intelligence. It's clear enough. Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? In other words, if the message of the gospel is that salvation is a free gift of grace, then why, if I have accepted the gift, why should I go on struggling against sin in my life? In other words, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Logically, it makes sense. Anytime someone is asking that question, you can be rest assured that at least on a logical human level, the doctrine of justification in Christ alone has been rightly taught to them, has been rightly shared to them. If they come away with this question, then the details of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to grace alone, has been rightly taught. In other words, no one's asking that kind of question in any religion that is teaching a salvation by effort. Anybody in a work salvation teaching paradigm, anybody who's hearing that you can earn your salvation by works is not asking this question. They're not asking the question, can I just continue in sin so that grace might increase? Why? Because salvation is by works. The false gospel of salvation by works is being preached. There is no grace. But when the true gospel is preached, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, then this kind of question is inevitable. And so Paul gives the answer in a general way. Here's the General answer, verse 2, may it never be, how shall we who died to sin 
still live in it? In other words, shouldn't we continue in sin because of the superabounding nature of grace? And Paul's answer is no. That is absolutely unthinkable. May it never be. There is no stronger adversative in the original language. May it never be. It is absolutely unthinkable. The question can be challenged in a stronger way. You say, well, why such a strong challenge by the Apostle Paul? Because to ask that kind of question simply shows that while you may have heard rightly the gospel, while you may have heard rightly the teaching of justification by faith alone according to, or by grace alone, there is still a complete misunderstanding of the essence of justification by faith alone. In other words, if you raise the question about continuing in sin and shouldn't you just keep on living in order to highlight grace, if that's the question in your mind, that just shows that you have yet to fully understand what it means to be unified with Christ. Which means you have yet to understand fully justification in Christ. In other words, if you truly understand the doctrine of justification, then you also understand the doctrine of your actual union with Christ. And therefore, you understand how you are to live right now. Maybe it's better to put it like this. To truly understand the abounding grace of God that continues to abound where there is sin is to understand the purpose of grace overall. Let me say that again. To truly understand the abounding grace of God that continues to abound even where there is sin is to understand the purpose of grace overall. And maybe it's just better to ask it in the form of a question. Is the business of grace, is it the business of grace to allow the Christian to continue in sin? Eh, That's the other way to ask the question. Is, Is that grace's purpose to allow us who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ to continue in sin? The only answer Paul would give is no. That's not what the purpose of grace is. The business of grace is not to let you live in sin. The business of grace is to deliver us from the penalty and rule of sin and to place us under its rule to deliver us from the penalty and rule of sin and to place us under the rule of grace. How do we know that? Because that is exactly what Paul is saying in verse 2. He's saying it in a greater way. Notice what he says. He gives that strong adversative, may it never be, and then he asks this question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it. How shall we who died? According to the grammar of this statement, the word died carries the meaning of something that has happened once in past history and will never be accomplished again for us. It has happened once and forever in the past. In other words, it is a definite fact of our history. We factually died to sin. We died to sin. That's what Paul says. How shall we who died to sin? A definite act in our history. And note, Paul is not referring to a process here. The grammar is not a process. This isn't something that is, 
you, you should have happened in the past and it's ongoing throughout time, this death to sin. No, Paul is not referring to a process. The whole process happened in the past. In fact, this entire passage, verses 1 to 14 and on, are littered, it's peppered with the idea of past tense. Something that happened in the past, done. There is no progressive action here in this, in this text. Why should we not continue in sin to highlight grace? Because we've already died to it. Now, what does that specifically mean? What does that specifically mean? It's, it's very important. This is a very important statement in understanding this, the entire flow of this entire text. And we have to interpret it correctly or we're going to get everything else wrong. This is the statement. Now, I want us to focus first on the word we for a moment. May it never be, how shall we, Paul says. Notice, it isn't referring to a collective group of Christians in a specific kind of way. In other words, Paul isn't just describing uh, this group of Christians and how shall we as a group continue in that because in the past at some point we died to sin. No, he, he's more speaking to us individually. Paul is speaking of our personal condition. This is our personal condition as Christians. He says, how shall we personally... He means, how shall we in our present condition? How shall we personally as individual Christians in our present condition being unified with Jesus Christ? In other words, how is it even possible that you, being in that present condition of justification by unification with Jesus Christ in an actual and present way, how is it even possible that you go on sinning so that grace might abound more? That's what he's saying. How can we, who have died to sin, still live in it? So the whole emphasis of Paul is on our current special position as a child of God. Let me say it this way. If you realize who you are and what your position is by grace in Christ, then the question seems rather ridiculous, doesn't it? Sin? Really? Why would I do that? Let me say it in a way that would address the current idea of living your professed Christian life any way you desire because after all, I'm under grace. The trouble with that kind of thinking is that while you believe you are highlighting grace, while you believe that if I go on sinning, grace is highlighted all the more, while you believe that in your mind, the reality is you are actually denying the reality of your death to sin. If you say, oh, I'll just go on sinning so that grace abounds all the more, you're actually denying what God has declared about you in Christ that you have died to sin. What you're actually saying is sin is still ruling me. You actually don't understand or realize who you are now because of grace. Can we, Paul says, being who we are and what we are because of grace, actually go on living in sin? You see, that's the real question. That's the impulse of Paul's argument here. And so Paul makes that key statement. How shall we who died to sin? In other words, something happened to us. Something happened to us. An event took place. An act happened. It's fact. It is a finished fact. That's the tense of the verb here that Paul is using when he says died. He uses that tense over and over and over again in verse 6. He uses that tense knowing this, that our old self was crucified. That's past tense. He uses it in verse 7. 
where he uh, continues to, to say things for he who has died. He uses it in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, he uses it in verse 10. Uh, again, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. He uses it in verse 11. He's even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin. So what does it mean? What does it mean that we have died to sin? Well, this is where the problem comes in because you'll read all kinds of nonsense in books. And some will say that it means that we have died to the influence of sin. That when Paul says we, it may never be, how should we who died to sin still live in it? How should we who died to the influence of sin? And my only question is, how can that be true? Are you influenced by sin? I am. If I'm dead to the influence of sin, then that influence would have no influence. And yet it seems to still have an influence. So that can't be what Paul means. And it's not something I do. It's something that happened to me. Some will say that we, quote, should be dead to sin. That that's what Paul really means. That how shall we who should be dead to sin still live in it? Meaning that if we really understood who we are, then we should be dead to it. But that doesn't make any sense to me because Paul's talking about something that happened to us in the past, a factual thing happening. And should would indicate that it's something that I'm doing now in a present tense kind of way. But that's not what Paul's saying by the grammar. It's not something ongoing by me. So that can't be what Paul means. Still others say that it means to that we have renounced sin as Christians. So why live in it? In other words, how shall we who renounced sin still live in it? And there is a sense of truth in that, in the idea of our own Christian living. I mean, we we repented of our sin. We renounced that and we confessed it and we turned from it. But I don't believe that is what Paul fully means here. Why? Because Paul isn't speaking about something we did. Renouncing is something we do. Paul is speaking about something that happened to us. He's referring to a fact that already took place. Paul says we died to sin, past tense fact. In what sense did we die to sin? One thing that is meant is that we have died to the guilt of sin. We've died to the guilt of sin, right? In other words, as far as the guilt of punishment for sin is concerned, right? in Adam we were guilty of sin, we were all condemned, and we all sinned. We were guilty, and the punishment for sin was there. As far as the guilt and the punishment for sin is concerned, we could even call it the judicial requirement of the law. right? If you break the law, you're guilty of the law. If you violate one portion of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. Adam broke the command of God, guilty of everything. So it was the requirement of the law in a judicial way, that guilt and punishment. But as far as that is concerned, we are finished with it. It's been taken care of. In other words, the penalty of the law cannot touch us any longer. We died to it. Here's how. Paul's going to say it in chapter 8, verse 1. I quoted it earlier. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's that reality. The punishment and guilt of sin has no bearing. So, it's true that we've died to the penalty of sin. That's true. But Paul wants to emphasize something more than that. He wants to understand something more than that. And what is that? It's actually back in verse 21 of chapter 5. Notice he says, well, I'll read at the end of verse 20. 
where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, here's the purpose. So that, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would what? Reign through righteousness to eternal life. Did you notice what he's saying? He's saying that there was a time when sin ruled the day in our lives. There was a time when sin reigned in death. In other words, sin called the shots. Sin was the king. Sin was the sovereign. Sin was the ruler. We were slaves of that master. We were in his realm. We were under his control, if you will. We, we lived in His village. But now, as Christians, as unified with Jesus Christ, we have died to that rule of sin. We have died to that Master. In other words, the reign of sin is gone in and over me. It's gone. The reign of it. The rule of it. So, I didn't just die to the guilt and penalty of sin, Paul's saying. You you didn't just die and get freed from the guilt and penalty of sin and now grace covers it all, go live how you want. No, you died as well to the rule of sin. You died to its reign. So what's being contrasted by Paul here is that now in Christ, in an actual and present way, we are under the reign and rule of grace. We are not under the rule of sin. So think, to think that you ought to live in sin, or that it's okay that you could live continually in it now, is to completely misunderstand who you are in Christ. That you are ruled already by grace. You're already ruled by grace. So, where at one time sin reigned over us, in Christ now grace reigns. So Paul's whole point is this. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he uses words, if you are justified by faith, then you are actually joined to Christ. You have an actual, present union with Jesus Christ. You are unified with Him. Therefore, you have finished with sin's rule in life. You're done with that. It's died. You have died to the rule of sin. You're actually a corpse to it. You're now under the reign and rule of grace. So how shall we, who died to the reign of sin, how shall we who died to the rule of sin of sin over us still live under its reign. Still live under its rule. When you are now under the rule of grace. You see, you're already under its rule. It is already superabounding. In other words, you're not under the power of sin. Now you're under the power of grace. Now you're under the power of its influence. Now you're under the power of its rule in your life. When Christ died to sin, you died to sin. And by faith in Jesus Christ, that reality was activated by God in your life. So now, because of who we are in Christ, because we are under the rule of grace, we've been freed and we have been equipped to not sin. 
not see. Let me just share what the Apostle Paul said to the Colossian believers. And we'll just close with this in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. Here's, here's what God did for us. For He rescued us. From where? From the domain of darkness. You know what He's saying? He delivered us from the kingdom, from the rule, from the sovereign, from the slave camp of darkness. He delivered us from that. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. You've been taken from the rule. You've died to sin. You in your present condition actually in and and in reality identified with and attached to and and unified with Jesus Christ have been transferred from the domain, the rule, the reign, the kingdom of sin and its rule and its influence over you and been transferred by God into the kingdom and reign of His dear Son, the kingdom of grace, where grace rules. You've been freed and equipped now live in obedience. So why then do I still sin? Why do I still sin? Paul's going to answer that question next time. If I'm dead to it, why do I still sin? Paul's going to explain... Next time, verses 3 to 11, 12 to 14. Father, thank you. Thank you for the helps that we have from dead saints who have gone before us. Thank you for helping to clarify in our hearts and minds the truths that the Apostle Paul was writing that we might understand exactly what you mean by what you said. So that in thinking about that and understanding our unification with Jesus Christ, we would indeed be solidified in our, our assurance. That we wouldn't be confused about that. That when you declare it, it is absolute. By faith in Jesus Christ, which comes by grace alone, we don't need to abuse your grace. We stand in grace. We live in the realm of grace. It is grace that rules the day in us. And so why would we ever sin in that condition? Father, thank you for helping us with that understanding. Help us to live these things out in a practical way in our daily lives and help us back tonight and next week to hear more, to uncover more, to, to listen to what you would have for us so that we can fully understand the power of grace in our life. That you would be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.